You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. So I'm going to go ahead and do our scripture reading for the day, um, which is Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15 through 773. So I'm going to read until about... 38, because I think you'll get the gist from there, (laughs) but uh, excuse me if I mispronounce all the names. (laughs) So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara. And his son, Jehohanan, had taken the daughter Meshalem, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid." Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up the first and I found written in it, These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispareth, Bigvi, Nehum, and Baranah. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Perosh, 2,172, the sons of Shephatiah, 372, the sons of Ara, 652, the sons of Pahath Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818, the sons of Elam, 1,254, the sons of Zatu, 845, the sons of Zakai, 760, the sons of Binui, 648, the sons of Babai, 628, the sons of Asgad, 2,322, the sons of Adonakam, 667, the sons of Bigvi, 2,067, nine sons of Aden, 655, the sons of Adder, namely Hezekiah, 98, the sons of Hashum, 328, the sons of Bezai, 324, the sons of Harif, 112, the sons of Gibeon, 95, the men of Bethlehem and Netophah, 188, 42, the men of Kiriath, 128, the men of Beth Asmaveth, 42, 
the men of Kiriath, Jerim, Chephirai, and Beeroth, 743. The men of Ramah and Geba, 621. The men of Michmas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 123. The men of the other Nebo, 52. The sons of the other Elam, 1,254. The sons of Harim, 320. The sons of Jericho, 345. The sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 721. The sons of Sina, 3,930. This is the word of the Lord. Excellent work, Rachel. Thank you. Thank you for all hanging in there through that long list. Uh, if you're a guest, welcome to New City. We're really glad that you're here. Um, it's a joy this time of year, I think, as a lot of people are visiting, and uh, it's, a, it's a joy to see a lot of new faces. So thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, as we, you know, in preaching, you pick out a book like Nehemiah and largely is really exciting because you have these very compelling stories. You know, the rising tension of them putting the resources together to build the wall and these moments of them like, if you remember a couple chapters ago, they're building with a tool in one hand and a spear in the other for the enemies that, that might attack. And so there's all this excitement, this rising drama and, and so forth. Uh, but then you also have a little bit of trepidation because you hit you know, lists like, uh, like the genealogy that you just read. And just like an inside look into my mind and preparing to preach through the book is a bit of a thought of like, man, when we get to that chapter, what in the world am I gonna say about all these lists and all these names? Some of you may be thinking like, dude, like you don't have to take 40 minutes. Uh, <laughs> first of all, it's cold in here this morning and it's a beautiful day outside. Um, you don't have to, but you all paid for a full church service this morning. So we're gonna give you uh, the full experience, but joking aside, and I'm not just trying to like hype up this list of names and numbers. As I considered this chapter and really not so much the list of names, but where this list of names falls in the story of Nehemiah, I was gripped this week and my heart was set on fire with what God might have for us to hear in this moment. Because once again, I'm not just trying to sauce this list up and like make it you know, more palatable for us this morning. I could not think of a more relevant passage for where New City Fellowship sits this morning than the passage we just read. And so pray with me, if you will, and uh, invite God into this gathering for him to speak to us as we consider his word. Lord, I thank you that, that your word is inspired. And even passages that we might initially come to and think to ourselves, maybe this was a big deal a long time ago when they needed you know, their, their citizens and their list of names and you know, their census and so forth. But for us, it can feel distant. God, I thank you that even in lists like this one, you have things to say to us. And so Lord, I pray that you would speak to people in this room this morning. I pray that, that weary people would find encouragement to keep going. I pray for you as a church. Um, Lord, I pray ultimately that we will see a clearer picture of who you are, who your son Jesus Christ is, and the work that you are carrying out in the world through the church in this moment. We pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Uh, so if you're in this room and you've been married wedding hangover, and I'm not talking about the open bar hangover, that's a different sermon. What I'm talking about is the months maybe years 
of anticipation and planning and putting it all together, the event happening, and you, you having kind of an experience afterwards of, wow, was that it? I, consider this with me. We will spend months, some of us years, dreaming and scheming to make that wedding event spectacular. We'll do the most important things like going to the different caterers and trying the food to make sure that it's gonna be good at the wedding. We, we spend time arguing over the wedding registry and you know, what shower curtain we're gonna uh, have in our house. Uh, you, know, you, you spend so much time finding the calligrapher to make the uh, wedding invite that'll be on somebody's refrigerator for uh, months to come. Uh, picking out the colors and uh, trying to come up with a communication strategy so that your groomsmen will follow the instructions and get their proper attire in the proper colors and, and, and so forth. Uh, so much planning leading up to it. And then there's, of course, the event itself. Uh, you know, I couldn't, I don't know if you could, sleep the night before uh, all day long. You've got butterflies. You're stressed out about the wedding event, uh, re rehearsing your, um, you know, your parts during the ceremony, your vows to make sure that, that you don't mess it up. Um, uh, you know, all of this stress, all of this anticipation, uh, the event hits, you hopefully have a good time, but then just like that, it's over. Just like that, there's this kind of almost anticlimactic feeling. Maybe, maybe some of you felt it, you know, a little bit past your honeymoon, like all of that buildup, all of that work, all of that perhaps unnecessary stress and conflict and all of it, now it's done. It's finished. There can be, you know, if, Maybe your experience was any bit like mine, a bit of a sense of anticlimactic feeling after a wedding ceremony. But what you realize in the months and the years ahead of being married is that of course the wedding ceremony isn't actually about the wedding ceremony. Let, let it be a big celebration and plan and, and all of those things, that's fine. Like make, make it a great party, but the wedding ceremony isn't about the ceremony. What's it about? This morning, I'll just describe it this way, if you will, called a covenant in which a new life can begin. The wedding ceremony is about building a structure around your relationship with this other human being where you are now set up within the context to begin a new life with one another. The wedding ceremony isn't about the, the ceremony itself. It's about building this structure where you can watch your spouse, if they're a follower of Jesus, through the years become more and more like him through conflict and struggle and difficulty than, than any, anything you could have imagined at the beginning. The wedding ceremony is about building a structure in which you can come to love someone in ways you didn't even know possible. The wedding ceremony is about building the context in which you can be married and even bring a new life into the world. And if you've had this experience of holding your newborn child and standing in speechless awe at the, at the miraculous work of God creating a new life in this structure that you have called a marriage. The wedding ceremony isn't so much a new life together can be lived. So let's consider then the book of Nehemiah. It's all about a structure, right? Like that, that's, that's what it is. And there's been all of this anticipation for six chapters leading up to the wall's completion. So rewind with me for just a moment. It, it begins with uh, Nehemiah 
And he is uh, burdened by the fact that Jerusalem lies in ruins, that it had been invaded by uh, Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar and the people had been exiled. Uh, But God begins to burden him. And so he spends months praying and fasting about something to do. And then miraculously, the king sends Nehemiah to go back and begin rebuilding the wall. And he provides all of the resources that that they need to do that. And he arrives and he begins inspecting the wall, seeing the problems that, that, that exist within it. Uh, and, and he begins rallying the people together. Th- there is at that moment when they're called to rebuild the wall and volunteer to see this wall constructed. Uh, but then as they begin building, there's sort of this rising tension of the surrounding nations. Uh, there, there's the surrounding nations that are threatening to attack, where once again, they have to build with a tool in one hand and uh, a weapon in the other. There, as we discussed last week, all these distractions and voices and noise that are trying to get the people to get their attention off building uh, the wall. Uh, and then the wall comes to completion really in, in what would seem to be miraculous timing. So it says here that in 52 days, the wall was completed. And mind you, this is with no like power tools or excavators or dump trucks. And in 52 days, they do it. Like I've lived in Northern Virginia for almost half my life. And uh, with dump trucks and power tools and excavators, we still can't get our major highways together. Uh, Decades that's been going on. But here they are, 52 days, they complete the wall. So what would you expect after all this drama, all this tension, you know, all all of this anticipation about the wall being built? Well, at the very least, I would think Nehemiah would throw a party, call in a DJ, have have some some great food there, um, maybe hand out some awards, you know, best bricklayer, most improved, you know, construction worker, like a best effort award for the person who wasn't very good at building but tried really hard, like some awards to hand out. Maybe you'd expect like a ribbon cutting ceremony where we, we've built the wall, it's done, all the big names are there, all the high priests and Levites and so forth are there and a big, a big, wedding, a big um, uh, ribbon cutting ceremony. But th- this is all we get at the beginning, at the, at the middle part of chapter six, after chapters of anticipation, this is what we get about the completion of the wall. Verse 15, read along with me. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And that's it. After all these weeks of talking about this all important wall, the, the, the construction of the wall, that, that's, that's literally it. No celebration, no ribbon cutting. He simply almost had on everything else. Doesn't that seem to you almost a bit anticlimactic? Doesn't that seem to you to almost be too quick of a mention of the wall without focusing more deeply on on just perhaps, you know, what the wall looked like and how it was, you know, had what set it apart from other walls? None of that. Just an anticlimactic kind of mention in passing that this wall that we've been devoting our lives to building at risk to our own lives have, have been building that's it. Here's what we have to realize about the completion of the wall, specifically in the context of the book of Nehemiah. What we realize this morning is that the wall is not about the wall. The wall is a structure for something much more significant to happen. The wall is a, a context or a, a boundary in which something much more important can take place. And for us to understand what that much more important reality is, we've got to see, what do we see right after the completion of the wall? 
as soon as the passing comment of the wall being completed happens, what we see just a few paragraphs later is a list of names, but not just any names, not just any people. These are exiles. These are outcasts. These are people who, like the prodigal son, people who had committed idolatry after idolatry, sin after sin. This people who in their existence as a nation were morally repugnant. And so they were exiled just like the prodigal son was in a foreign land. What does this list of names get to do? Chapter seven, verse six. These were the people of the province who came up out of captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon had carried into exile. Here's what they got to do. They returned to Jerusalem. New City Fellowship, the wall is not about the wall. It's about creating a structure in which the outcasts get to come back home. The wall is about creating a structure for the outcasts to come back home, begin a new, now live redeemed lives with one another. They, they get to come home and begin a new life together, a fresh start, a clean slate. I love how uh, the, the conclusion of this paragraph in chapter seven, kind of describing the completion of the wall is here in verse four. Chapter seven, verse four. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been built. What happens immediately after that? The people begin coming back. So you've got this wide open area that's now surrounded by a wall with no houses, nothing really going on in it. What's gonna happen in that place? Well, the outcasts are gonna come back in and they're gonna live before the presence of God and they're gonna establish families and build houses and build culture and music and they're gonna eat food together and they're gonna live their lives together before the presence of God. Not because they deserved it, uh, not not because that was something that was owed to them, but because God is gracious and he is in the business of welcoming back exiles home. What's the purpose of the wall? It's not about the wall. The wall is insignificant. The wall is simply a structure in which the outcasts can come back home and live redeemed lives together before the presence of God. So let's shift it from then 2,500 years ago to then New City and the, the, the place that we find ourselves in right now. So we as elders intentionally picked the book of Nehemiah for the season that we are in in the life of, of our church. So we're right at five years old right now. And we just had this crazy, you know, really year and a half. And we're still sorting out a little bit of online services and meeting in seven different locations and uh, watching many of the structures that we relied on in years past kind of crumble and disintegrate. Honestly, watching some of our culture that right now is rebuilding. We are re uh, that, that will hopefully bring about uh, our mission. And I was sitting with a pastor earlier this week and just describing like the challenge that it feels like right now for us in the season of church that we're in. So some of you are new, you just got in, that's great. Some of you've been around for a while. And what I described the feeling at times of kind of doing life and ministry at New City right now is that it feels almost like a church plant without church plant energy. 
It, it, it feels like we've got to rebuild this church, but we definitely don't have the same excitement and zeal and focus that we had five years ago. I remember having Veritas here a, a couple of weeks ago. It was a joy, man. I love that season of church where all of them are here like 15 minutes early. They've all got bright smiles on their faces, ready to charge the hill and do whatever the leader asks them to do. I'm like, man, I, I remember that zeal. And that's the kind of zeal that brought this church about. But here we are, we're, I'm weary. Like we've been at it for a long time. So it feels like we are in this season of rebuilding without that, that initial energy. But if all we focus on are sort of the structures, well, we need this many kids volunteers and on Sunday we meet at this time and we need the chairs out. And then during the week we have these discipleship groups and we've got these regional communities. If, the, if all we have our eyes on are the structures themselves, we'll lose heart and miss the bigger reality of what God is wanting to do through New City Fellowship. What is our mission? What are we doing here in the year 2021? We're actually doing the same daggum thing that Nehemiah was doing 2,500 years ago. As we, what we are doing is building a structure in which the outcasts can find their way home and live redeemed lives together before the presence of God. That's what we're doing. That's what we live for. It's for God through our church to somehow find the prodigals that are out there. Those that are in a foreign land as far from God as they could possibly be, who hear the gracious invitation of Jesus to have their sins forgiven and to be welcomed into the household of God. That is what we exist for as a church. All of the structures, all of the pieces that need to be in place from production team to discipleship groups and everything in between, we exist to give an invitation for the outcasts to come back home to God and to live together as a community our new redeemed lives with one another. For life to be lived together, the structures we build here as a church are simply a context, a, a, a structure in which we can live our redeemed lives before God. And so what I wanna do then is, is shift from looking at the, this general idea of, of building structures for people to come home and live new life before God. I wanna shift our attention to that, to talking about some of our structures specifically and what we hope and pray will happen within them. I wanna focus on just three things, okay? So I wanna be clear during this season of what does it mean for me to be a part of New City? Membership is kind of behind it all. We wanna encourage everybody to be thinking about church membership, uh, but, but what are like practically, what does it mean for me to be involved here? And I wanna talk about three areas. I wanna talk about Sunday service, I'll talk about discipleship groups, I wanna talk about regional communities, okay? Each of those components, each of those structures and the goal that we hope to see happening within them. Let's just briefly mention Sunday service. Brian hit this at the beginning during our call to worship. If we've learned anything through our church services in our living room, uh, you know, or on our dinner tables, what we've learned, you know, through the, the season of COVID is that this gathering is so important for our walk with God. The Sunday worship gathering is a critical structure. It is a structure. Like God instituted it on a recurring repetitive basis for us to gather together. It is so vital for our new life with God together. What are we hoping happens in this service? On the one hand, we hope that this is a place where the outcasts, if you will, those far from God can come in and hear the gracious invitation of the gospel to come back home like the prodigal son did. We, we hope that happens here. But, but this purpose, this service also serves an incredibly important purpose for 
your fundamental life purpose. We talked about it last week. Your fundamental life purpose is to glorify. So as we come here and as we worship and as we hear God's words spoken and as we uh, fellowship with one another and hear one another's voices, what's happening in this gathering? Our love for God, our zeal for God that can often dwindle throughout the week with the distractions and the struggles we face in this gathering. It's being rekindled, reignited for us to go into a new week. Uh, working with charcoal quite often, you see this happen with pieces of charcoal. If you have a fire and you take one of the lumps of charcoal, hopefully with a glove or something, and you separate it from the rest of the uh, fire, what what happens? Does it blaze and burn? Uh, No, what's gonna probably happen to it is it's gonna quickly, you know, dwindle out. It's gonna kind of smoke and smolder for a little bit. And if it's left out there for too long, it'll grow completely cold. That's it. But when you put some charcoal back with other charcoal that that are on fire, what happens? It reignites and it adds to the fire and the flame of the whole. When we are throughout the week, sometimes we can dwindle a little bit. Our zeal, our faith begins to, to shrink. What happens when we come back together? Our love for God, our zeal for his name is rekindled, but that can't be an isolated project. It has to be done together. And that's what's happening at this Sunday service. So what do we hope to see in this Sunday service, in this structure, if you will, for that life, that fire to happen in in our souls? On the one hand, we just wanna continue to commend and, and, and point to the importance of regularity. This is always meant to be a regular rhythm in our relationship with Jesus. But the normal pattern is that we gather for pattern of our life. Of course, stuff happens and you have other things to do, that's fine. But the normal pattern is that we gather for worship. Secondly, we're seeing this happen, man. I'm just amazed at the volunteers that come in week in and week out to make this happen. But in order for this to happen, we need to just continue to see our volunteer lists just flooded with people saying, here, sign me up. I'd love to serve this structure so that outcasts can come home and live their life before God. I would love to do that. And then finally, what I would hope to see continually in this service, which we've felt through the years of New City, is a great deal of zeal and energy in this room. Like you can say, so if you want to say amen, you can, but like just safe context. You can, if you want to, don't have to, you can, if you want to. As we worship, let's fully engage our voices and our hands and uh, our energy so that this is like that collective group of charcoal together, a place of energy, a place of fire together. That's what we hope to see happening here on Sundays. What else do we hope that the people who are part of New City are involved in? That we gather here in the big group on Sunday, but then every last one of us is our prayer, that's our hope, would find our way into a discipleship group. That's the second structure that that we're focusing on as a church. What uh, are we recognizing with those discipleship groups? What we're recognizing is this. The process of growing as disciples, when we read the Bible, it seems to happen in two separate contexts. Big gatherings like this one and small gatherings that are a lot more personal. So you see this in the book of Acts, for example, that the whole church would come together in the temple and that they would all be there in a big group. And that was incredibly important. But then quickly after in Acts chapter two, it describes how they would break up into each other's homes and on a more personal, perhaps intimate level, they would connect with one another in these smaller settings. We see the same approach with Jesus. There were moments where he taught the masses but then there were also moments where he would switch and focus his attention on a group of, of three guys, his discipleship group, if you will. And then there were 12 on top of that, but, but three especially that, that, that he poured into. We're just recognizing as we seek to make disciples at New City, the big gathering is important, 
But incredibly important along with that are these smaller gatherings where we hope to experience reality. What do we want to be happening in our discipleship groups? One, we wanna open up the reality of our lives. That means the real you, okay? You can put, you know, the... the you know, the, the public version of you here on Sunday, that's fine. But in your discipleship groups, we want the real thing. What's going on in your life? What are the victories? Where are you struggling? The discipleship group is a place to share that. And then as we open up the reality of our lives, we open up the reality of God's word, see what it has to say to us on a personal level. And then we watch our lives in a very real way be transformed. As our real selves meet God's real word, our real lives begin to be changed. That's what we hope happens there. Now, some of you may have a rebuttal with discipleship groups that that's great for some people. For me, I've kind of got this program that I'm plugged into, or I really thrive alone. I'm a bit of an introvert. And so with me on my own and my Bible, that's, that's where I experience the most growth. Most growth. And that, that might be the case. We, all, all that is fine. And if you don't end up in a discipleship group, like at the end of the day, the day that's okay. I just want to describe it to you in this way. A little while ago, I was able to visit a friend of mine who runs this very large nursery for plants that you would put in sort of your garden, different flowers and shrubs and things like that that, that you'd have there. And he has this very large property where uh, there's greenhouses all over the place where these plants are going. And so we begin taking a tour of this property and we begin with uh, just kind of a, a new greenhouse that had been constructed. And, and we look inside, this is, this is kind of what we see. We see you know, the, the poles that, that hold it up. We see this kind of white material that's kind of like a tent that, that insulates all of it. Uh, there's these complicated watering systems that flow through it. There are these, uh, you know, tables that things will go on, dirt floors, um, you know, temperature controls. And to be honest, like, not that exciting. If I'm, make, if I'm making it sound exciting, like, cool. Like, not, not that interesting, actually. But then we went from, like, the one just constructed to one in active use, you walk in this greenhouse and the, the atmosphere changes. You see colors of all sorts blossoming. You, you have different smells of the different plants that are growing. You hear the bristling of the, of the uh, you know, leaves and different things against one another. What, what you see is abundant life. That's what you see. Now, could those plants that are in that greenhouse just go out into the forest somewhere and grow on their own? Maybe. They may be devoured by a deer or something like that. That could happen to them out in the forest. Uh, they, they may grow a little bit, but here's what I can be sure. Those plants were, were set up in the ideal context for growth to happen. They positioned themselves in an environment where you could be quite sure that if you have all those little ingredients in place, abundant life and growth. Even though the structures, the weekly rhythm, trying to find time in my schedule and after a long day at work or early in the morning, like it's not that exciting, it's not that interesting. But if I go into that greenhouse called a discipleship group, I can be quite confident that life and growth is gonna be experienced. And so we're hoping here, one of the main things that Brian puts attention to beyond our Sunday services here in worship is our discipleship groups. We're hoping to put a lot of focus and effort into that over the, the next year. We're gonna be opening up signups again for people to jump in. Even if you're not a member, we'd love to have a conversation with you and welcome you into a discipleship group. And so what we need for that structure to happen is simply some commitment, some, some uh, people saying, yes, I wanna sign up and I wanna get in the greenhouse so that I can experience growth in my life. So that's, that's the second structure. On the calendar and at the end of the, week, end of the day, not that exciting of a structure, but if you commit to walk with Jesus. Let's, let me read for you regional communities, regional communities, okay? Let me read for you 
from our website, we have our core values up. One of them is community. Let me just read real briefly what this core value uh, says for us as a church. The gospel not only changes how we relate to God, but also to how we treat one another. Having been adopted as God, the Father's children, we now relate to one another as family and pursue authentic relationships with each other. We will care for, encourage, lovingly confront, and walk in genuine love for one another as we grow together in Christ. We seek to be a diverse family, which is only explainable through the gospel. I could talk about a bunch of things in that. There's two words I wanna hit on real quick, family and care. What we hope happens in the context of New City is that there would be a familial sense in the way we relate to one another. Um, you know, there's different kinds of communities. You can have communities around sports clubs or communities around interests that you have, but then a particular kind of community is a family. That's what we hope that you would experience here. But not all families have the most warm, caring environment. Different people have different experiences in their family. I understand that. So, so we wanna be a church family that expresses genuine care, concern, uh, interest in one another. And the structure that we're throwing out there now that we can hope help facilitate that are by dividing us into regions because we can't know everybody in the church. But what if we focused really specifically on the people who kind of lived in our neighborhood or in our, our broader context uh, where on a structural level, you guys meet together on the second Sunday of every month where you gather for lunch, you eat together. Some of the best family bonds are formed over a meal with one another. So we just simply wanna see you eating together. Uh, I think that's something we all can do. Um, but then outside of that gathering, you begin getting phone numbers and, and pursuing one another so that uh, some real genuine relationships can form in these different communities. Now, let me just speak directly to New City right now. I would say when our church started, perhaps one of the brightest lights in the culture of New City was our culture of family, our culture of care, our culture of noticing people and making sure that they were invited and welcoming in and taking very seriously the opportunities to get together with one another. I'd say COVID has definitely shaken that up a bit. And I think that this is an area that we need to give some attention up for a regional community. And if you are gathering, so I wanna commend this to us simply because it's, it's an essential structure for our own walk with God, but listen to me. This can be one of the brightest lights about our church that stands out in our broader cultural context. One of the things that can set us apart most as a church is the familial care that we have for one another and for those who find their way into our midst. Um, so we talk in membership class all the time about New City Fellowship. What we wanna be is a city within a city. Yes, we live in Northern Virginia. Yes, we live in Manassas or broader Prince William County, but we wanna stand out from the rest of the context that we find ourselves in. And so let me just ask a question here in this room, just show of hands. How many of you moved to Manassas or kind of where you're at right now within the last like year to year and a half? How many people have moved here? A bunch of people, maybe a third of the room, maybe more than that recently moved here. Now, when you crossed over the Potomac, maybe you're already here, but if you crossed over the Potomac, you were greeted with a welcome sign. Here's what it said. Welcome to Virginia. Virginia is for? Lovers. Virginia is for lovers. 
If you're new here, I need to have an honest conversation with you. That sign was lying, okay? <laughs> now I've only lived in Northern Virginia. I don't know how Richmond goes. I don't know how Virginia Beach goes. All I can tell you is Northern Virginia. Northern Virginia is not for lovers. Northern Virginia is for workers. That's what we're here to do. Northern Virginia is for accomplishers. Uh, Northern Virginia is for people who are climbing the ladder and getting things done. That, that is what the sign, if I could make the sign, this is what it would say. Welcome to Virginia. We don't care about you. We have things to do. That, that would be a more accurate, because again, it's not, I, I don't want to get myself in trouble if you're like from the Northeast. It's not that we're just like naturally mean, like perhaps Boston or New York. That's not, that's not the case. Um, it's, it's not that we're just mean. We just have things to do. Like we're busy. We don't have, have time for you. We don't have time for one another. So we go you know, to work real early. We grind out at work and then we come home, pull in the garage, shut it. And then we don't see anybody until we're back at work perhaps on Monday. That's just the culture that we're in. What would it look like for there to be a city within that city of people who are genuinely pursuing relationships with one another. People who are saying, hey, yeah, what I, I've got incredibly important as well. Kind of, can I read for you a just description of something from a kind of community event we had two years ago. It was at a 4th of July event that we held here in Old Town. I can't think of a better description of what we hope these regional communities will bring about. Listen to this. This came from one of our members. Shannon, she said this, New City family, after this 4th of July event, I can't tell you how constantly proud and blessed I am to call New City our church home. Last night, Adam and I brought our neighbor to the 4th of July cookout. Our neighbor is not a believer, but has been interested in just hearing more about Christ. They're a military family, and because of that, they told us that they don't know anyone here and have no friends. My neighbor struggles with anxiety and uh, has a small son with autism. On the way home last night after the event, I heard her telling her husband who was traveling at, the first, uh, at, at that moment that for the first time in her life, she did not deal with anxiety because she felt like she had a village around her. She couldn't believe that while she talked to people, other people willingly played with and watched her son. She told her husband that she had never experienced this before. Here's the key sentence I think in here for us to take. She couldn't believe that people wanted to get to know her and seemed to care about her. She told her husband how he, eager she was to come to church and to get to know everyone better because she wants to feel that hope in her home. Thank you everyone for going out of your way to make her and her son feel accepted and welcome. As we think about like the structural event, second Sunday, go eat, go have lunch. Man, it's not about the structural. It's a genuine interest and concern and care for the people who find. That's who I long for us to continue to be, but it's gonna take some commitment to the different things that, that, that we're inviting you to participate in in the life of our church. Let me, let me just close with this thought. We see that sentence. She couldn't believe that people wanted to get to know her and seemed to care about her. Where do we as Christians, like where can we turn or where can we look as maybe natural Northern Virginians who don't care naturally about people? Where can we learn to care about people? Where you can look are at genealogies. 
Genealogies, the things you skip in your Bible reading plan, the things you just struggle to get through. Where can you learn to care about people? Just look to genealogies. I remember I was having a conversation with Tim about this a couple weeks ago. If you get nothing else from the discipline of reading genealogies, you know what you can pull from it? God knows the names of his people. God knows your name and he cares about you. You know, genealogies, reading through them are a very boring experience unless, unless what? Unless your name is on the list. If we were reading through this genealogy and just, you know, you're, you're, you're going through it and, you know, you're reading it and it says in Gurney, there was 324. Like you jump out of your seats or, you know, Carpio Fuchner, you saw your name, you would be immediately captivated by that because why? Your name is on the list. Brothers and sisters, as we in just as a second get ready to come to the Lord's table, what you can be confident of is that if you've put your faith in Jesus, God knows your name. He knows your name. He knows your circumstances. He knows your strengths, your weaknesses, your failures. He knows your name. Let me close by reading this book that God has here. It's referenced as a book of remembrance. Uh, This book is also referenced throughout the book of Revelation, could be considered the book of life. This is what it says. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him. And those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. So what that says is, God knows the names of his people, not just the Israelites who found their way back to Jerusalem from their exile back 2,000, 2,500 years ago. Man, God knows the name of all who fear him. And this is how he regards them. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. That structure, that wall, was about bringing back God's treasured possession, his people. And there's another structure, if you will, that allows us as outcasts to come back home. What changes us as human beings from outcasts in our sin, out there in the world, far from God, to be in his treasured possessions? It's the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the structure that creates that. When Jesus dies for our sin in our place, when he gives his life for us and we put our faith in him so that we ourselves can experience the benefits of what he did on our behalf, we move from outcast to God's beloved people, his chosen ones, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's treasured possession. So as you come forward and you take communion this morning, what I want you to be mindful of is the price that was paid to bring you home. We were all once dead in our sins, far from God, unable to save ourselves, unable to redeem ourselves until God sent forth his son to stand in our place, receive what our sins deserved on the cross to then rise up from the grave to give us these new redeemed lives that we get to live with one another. And so an outcast into his own treasured possession. We do believe that these elements that we participate in every week, 
are for those who have said, I was once an outcast. I was once far from God. I wanted nothing to do with him, but I've been saved through the sacrifice of Jesus. If you believe that, come forward and take these elements. If you don't believe that, I would encourage you to remain in your seats. We do believe that this is for those who have said, yes, Jesus, I trust you. I believe in you. The question that I would give you this morning, if you remain in your seats, if you're not ready to take communion yet, is this. God's got a book where he knows the names of his people. Is your name in that book? Does God know your name? Not just generally, like in a phone book. When we talk about God knowing our name, we're talking about him knowing us personally, us being his, us no longer being ourselves, but having given ourselves wholly over to Jesus. If you're in a place where you'd say you haven't done that, please stay in your seat, but hear the gracious invitation from God. Just like the people here in this story had the invitation, man, come back home, lay your sins aside and come back home. That invitation is laid before you this morning. If you would but turn away from your independence, turn away from your self-sufficiency, turn away from your even ability to be a good enough person for God to save you and say, hey, I'm gonna turn away from myself and put my faith in that finished work of Jesus. That's how we respond to that invitation. So the invite is yours. Does God know your name? Is your name written in his book? Let me pray for us now. God, thank you for the cross that these elements signify that moves us from outcasts to your treasured possessions. Lord, I pray that in this room, maybe there's some that would say, it's time, I'm ready. I give my life over to you in this room in this moment. And would you mobilize as a church to, to serve you in focusing on the different areas of this wall, this structure, so that we too could be a place where outcasts get to come home and live new life together before you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.